my punctuation sucked there. <laughs> <laughs> Brought to you by iLand, this is the Cloud Bytes Podcast, where we've brought together a panel of opinionated cloud customers, providers, and analysts to discuss topics related to how clouds are built, marketed, and consumed. Everyone has different needs in the cloud, so we'll debate the topic at hand, and at the very least, agree to disagree. Our goal is to provide good sound bites about how to manage your bytes in the cloud. And sometimes the best conclusion may simply be that the cloud bites. This episode is all about how clouds are architected to provide the capabilities customers are looking for. My name is Brian Knudsen. I'm a cloud technologist for iLand, and I will be acting as our moderator for today's discussion. This episode's panel includes a wide variety of experiences in developing infrastructure, both on-premises and in the cloud. Let's start by having each of our panelists quickly introduce themselves with their current role and a soundbite of their initial thoughts about what is important about being compatible in the cloud. Hey, everyone. I'm Aaron Delp, and I actually have a podcast uh, about cloud computing called The Cloudcast. I go out to thecloudcast.net or thecloudcast.net on Twitter. Been around for about uh, nine years now, um, really covering the cloud, emerging tech, lots of startups, uh, venture capital, and of course, the ins and outs and, and all the technology waves in our industry. As far as a quick uh, initial thoughts on this, you know, I think I have two qualifying questions that I'll get into here in a little bit that everyone needs to consider when you're talking about clouds and capabilities. My name is Lindy Collier. I am an employee of my own right. I'm a technology evangelist focusing on cloud and network security and Basically, a little bit about what I've been doing recently is helping um, people who have home labs across the globe, bringing them together and how they're using their home lab and, and how they are actually trying to consume into the cloud and vice versa and what makes sense so they can, you know, enhance their careers and in their position within their company. And the other side of things that I do is uh, try to just bring the community together in, in different formats to help them understand what's, what's happening in the wide world of technology these days. As the token Canadian, welcome to the crowd. Uh, my name is Eric Wright. <laughs> I'm, uh, I can be found online at Disco Posse uh, on Twitter. Uh, I blog at discoposse.com. Like Lindy and the last of the two remaining people on earth that use the word technology evangelist, I, I haven't become an advocate yet. So may, I'm going to say I'm a cloud provocateur. That, that could be right. And I also podcast at the <laughs> discopossepodcasts.com, which uh, is actually just as we record this, about to crack 100 episodes, which is kind of crazy. But uh, yeah, my hope is to be somewhere uh, somewhere along the Canadian line of the interesting challenges of cloud and also the fact that it's uh, it's coming at you whether you want it to or not. Some great community service in this group, and so I'm super excited for this one. Thank you all for joining me. There are many different choices of cloud platforms out there built on top of a variety of technologies, but what a cloud is capable of providing to customers and how applications are architected can be highly dependent on what technologies are utilized. How a cloud is built can drive what it can do. Clouds can be lumped into three general categories, on-premises or private, the hyperscalers like Amazon AWS, and boutique, specialty, VMware OpenStack-based type of clouds. Aaron, what are some of the underlying fundamental differences between these three approaches and how do they affect the capabilities that customers receive? Sure. Let me start off by kind of introducing some qualification questions, if you will. What I think everyone should be doing is you should be asking yourself two questions. The first one is, where are the ninjas, right? Do, do you want 
to hire your ninjas or, or outsource your ninjas or do you want to have your ninjas on staff? And what's your plan? What's the ultimate goal for your company in a cloud computing vision, if you will? And the reason why I say both of that is, unfortunately, we're going to do a mental visual here. If you kind of in your head picture a line and you say on-prem is on the left-hand side and you say the hyperscalers are all the way on the right-hand side, and I'm not going to place the specialty or boutique ones. We'll get into that in a second. But they are opposite ends of the spectrums, and they're opposite ends of the spectrum for those two reasons I just mentioned. On the left-hand side, when you have on-prem, if you think of on-prem, you know, private cloud kind of things, you're owning and operating that. You are in a CapEx kind of model, and you need the staff to own and operate that. So you need to hire your ninjas to operate your cloud. On the right-hand side, you've got the hyperscalers of the world, and it's a completely opposite model. It's pull out a credit card, go get things delivered to you quickly. Everything is an OPEX model, and all the ninjas, AWS, or Azure, or GCP, or Alibaba, or all of these others operate them for you, right? And so you have to really think about it that way first, and then match up the capabilities to them. And some considerations in all of that is in on-prem, obviously, it's very boutique very, I can do exactly what I want it to do and nothing more. The hyperscalers want to be everything to everyone, but does it check your specific boxes? So that's something you have to think about in all of that. The last thing, though, was the, the boutique ones. I kind of set it aside and, you know, like the VMware-based cloud ones and, and kind of some of the smaller regional or specialty ones. They're just going to be very different and, and they're going to be somewhere on that spectrum, but probably smack dab in the middle. And in talking to customers, the reason why I see them use the most is it's maybe a first baby step, right? It's that first baby step towards cloud or, or maybe I've got other things like data sovereignty laws or internal politics or compliance. There's usually a variety of other issues and very specific reasons why you're going with something like that. And with that, I'll pause. I, I'm going to jump in because that's my job. <laughs> uh, so one of the neat things too, when we talk about cloud and, and I, I, this is the one that I'm going to get yelled at a lot for. So v, like VMware cloud on AWS is an interesting one. When they talk about the idea of it being migrating to the cloud, and I fundamentally disagree, it's migrating beside the cloud. So it itself is using underlying cloud infrastructure and is beside cloud infrastructure, but it itself is not necessarily cloud. It's closer, uh, but it's funny, like, like you said, this sort of span of where, where the super hyperscalers are, and then where's the traditional on-prem private stuff, which is... You know, it's lower success rates, slower adoption, but it's getting there. More and more stuff is doing it. But it's funny that you're going to get the sliding scale of in between. And I think everybody's just trying to say like, hey, we're cloud too. But <laughs> most of the customers that use it aren't even ready for cloud a lot of times, which is why VMware Cloud and AWS, as an example, will do really well because most people aren't actually kind of ready for building and operating in a cloud model, understanding what things like eventual consistency and failure domains are in, in those models. And everybody loves five nines of availability until it's not. And they realize the only thing you get back is 10% of your monthly bill on that service alone. Like that, there's a difference between an SLO and an SLA and, and the SLA being only billing based. So anyways, that's my, that's my rant of the curiosity of, of how customers consume a lot of clouds. And I find that's a, 
that's why you're going to get this big swing in that range and you really laid out the visibility of it very nicely, Aaron. Yeah, I would agree. The thing that I will challenge is that, you know, right now, I think VMC on AWS, you had this big movement of, you know, what you do on-prem, you could now do in the cloud. And that skill set, to your point, Aaron, of those ninjas, you don't need a cloud ninja because they'll have that skill set because they've been working with the SDDC technologies for years now, right? But one, I think to your point, Eric, you know, now there's a, I feel that there's a backtrack in the conversation where technology companies like Dell and, and even VMware are starting to talk more about VCF, VMware Cloud Foundation. And, you know, it's in my mind and with a lot of clients that I talk to, it's confusing. Well, you know, I thought VMC on AWS was supposed to give me all the functionality and, and be where I should start. Now you're telling me I need to, you know, do VCF or understand what even VCF is. So in a lot of cases, I think it's the cart before the horse and it's time to reprogram and maybe, you know, to Aaron's point, you know, this swinging pendulum between both sides, what makes sense? So one of the things I've observed is that there, that pendulum swinging <laughs> also applies in another place as an analogy, which is, you know, we saw this really huge shift of people like, oh, you got to move to the cloud. So they move yeah. everything to the cloud and they realize, Time wait, <laughs> this everything to everyone cloud isn't giving us what we need, you know, whether it was because they didn't properly define the requirements or they didn't properly research it or they just blindly dove off the cliff. They found out that there was a cliff there. And they had to pull some stuff back. And now what we're seeing is, is that pendulum starts to get more towards that, that moderation space. We're seeing a spectrum. And again, that's one of the reasons Aaron's visualization is kind of good is because there's a spectrum. There's from the level of you do everything and it's, it's not really even cloud in the classic definition to this area where, you know, all you have to do is write code and all of a sudden it, it magically right. runs. And in between there is the right place for most people. The extremes are usually not the right place. My way of, of building on-premises may be cheaper than your way of building the exact same thing in the cloud, but that might be right for what I'm doing. And it's really key that you consider just like any technology decision, it's not any different. What are your requirements? And then figure out which one fits the best. Yeah. And uh, let me add a final point to that as well. You know, I think we as technologists, uh, being on this side, we we love the technology and sometimes we love technology for technology's sake, if you will. But let's be honest here. What what at the end of the day does the cloud do? The cloud is infrastructure plumbing and that's it. And yeah. Jeremiah Dooley, who many know in the community and probably many listeners of this podcast know, he was pretty famous and, and caught some, uh, you know, some interest in the community once upon a time uh, with a, a pretty fantastic VMUG presentation where the first slide was just infrastructure is boring. Yeah. And if the cloud is doing its job, no matter where the location is, infrastructure will be boring and it will serve the capabilities of the application. It's about the application and the application requirements more so than it is a lot of the vendors trying to push down as many services as they can. One of the greatest yeah. visualizations yeah. I had, Aaron, was uh, so in the, I live in New Jersey, a significant hunk of the time. And, and there, if you actually look up AWS Sewage, <laughs> New Jersey, there's actually a company called AWS Sewage. And I saw it. It was the perfect thing. It was literally a gigantic poop truck with AWS written on the side. And there's the hose going into the ground. I'm like, that's it. 
AWS, we carry your S around so you don't have to. <laughs> it, it was, <laughs> like, this is it. It's the plumbing that you don't want to deal with. And they were happy to do that. I was like, that's it. I love it. I probably would get yelled at by using that visualization on Twitter. But uh, hey, there you go. I podcasted it. <laughs> Fantastic. Imagine it yourself is maybe even worse as usual. <laughs> That's right. But as we think about that spectrum and what customers get out of it and what they consider to be a highly capable, trusting infrastructure, Lindy, I'm interested from your perspective, um, working really closely with customers is if a cloud technology or cloud platform is using common name brand equipment, think Intel, VMware, HPE, Cisco, Dell, um, the kind of stuff that we have always put into our own data centers as part of that cloud solution, does it create some automatic trust with customers? Do they automatically look at that and say, okay, I'm going to put this one a little bit higher than an AWS or Azure who's using something that they're building themselves that, that may not be as reliable, trustworthy. Does that make a difference to customers at all? Oh, absolutely. I think that that's one of the biggest questions when you go in and you talk to or the feedback that I get from a lot of clients is, don't put me into something that my people aren't familiar with. We trust, you know, this technology and, you know, we'll just talk about Microsoft. You know, I trust Microsoft. We are so far into Microsoft. We're using the Office 365 and we have all the bells and whistles and, you know, we're even using Hyper-V and, you know, it just makes sense for us to stay into the Azure cloud. But does it really make sense uh, at the end of the day? Are you just doing it because somebody at Microsoft told you that's what you needed to do. And it's changing that mindset and having that there's other, there might be a better way and there might be a better solution for that particular case and that particular application because it doesn't run well in Microsoft. Um, you know, but it's hard because you do have that, that adoption and you have that trust that clients, you know, tend to grab onto and they're just too scared to let go. That's a great point. And uh, let me add maybe a, a clarification point to that, because I think it's a, it's a fantastic question. I think it matters at certain layers up. And what I mean by that is to exactly your point, I think it matters hypervisor mm -hmm. layer up. I don't think it matters at the bare metal Absolutely. layer, if you will. Like, I don't think it matters if it's an HPE server or a Cisco server or a Dell server. I don't think it matters as much you know, the networking, unless you're exposing like, say, for instance, Cisco specific features to the customer or the same thing with storage. I, I think for the vast majority of systems uh, and clouds that are out there, that's the entire job is, you know, a cloud is supposed to be some dynamic pool of resources that abstracts away the underlying hardware bits. And, and I think that one of the key things there is you're abstracting away the hardware layer. So it doesn't matter whose logo is on the box, because at the end of the day, it's less about that hardware logo on the box and more about presenting the services up. And so as long as you've abstracted away enough to where you can submit those services up through the stack to where the user can use them, that's the end goal that matters. And that's the key differentiator for the capability of the cloud. And I would just add to that, you know, do what's best for your company, not what some sales rep comes in and says, oh, this is the new shiny object and it's going to do all of these wonderful things. Because at the end of the day, you know, it may not. And, and I think that, you know, when we started this conversation, we talked about, you know, Brian, you talked about 
companies who are all into the cloud. And then, you know, all of a sudden it's like, oh crap, we're not ready for this stuff yet. <laughs> so pull it all back. And then you're, it's this knee jerk reaction that you're buying in to solutions that aren't right for your company and you don't have the ninjas to do it. And when it comes, you know, we talk a lot about lock-in and getting stuck with certain vendors and whatnot. And quite frankly, every vendor that's mm -hmm. worth anything is going to lock you in because whether it's features and functionality or just the difficulty of getting your data out, once you make that decision, it's not easy to switch. No matter what technology, no matter how much you're making a decision based on lock-in, it's a classic case of, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Agreed. Can I pick on OpenStack? Hey, we, 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 we get behind me on that one. <laughs> we, <laughs> we don't these days. Line up. Where do we where do we sign up on that list? So, uh, so for those of us in the industry that followed OpenStack back in the day, and don't get me wrong, like I think that was pre Docker wave, right? So a couple waves have come and gone and crashed. But let's talk about OpenStack for a second because this was supposed to be kind of that on prem private answer way back in the day. But but you have this fundamental. Um, issue, and I think OpenStack fell victim to it, where you want to abstract away the layers like we were talking about earlier, but at the same time, you want to provide differentiated user experience. So what happened with OpenStack, you had all these vendors come in when it started to get big, and the OpenStack summits got all, you know, really big and, and you know, were sponsored by all these people. And then everyone tried to push, when I say everyone, the vendors tried to push their different things into OpenStack so that it became an HPE specific feature in OpenStack, right? You know, uh, just, you know, you name your vendor specific feature in OpenStack. Well, guess what? It started to muddy everything. It started to make everything complex. And that's where it started to get this impression that it fell over its scale because it just got too big and bulky. And it was this constant tension between OpenStack trying to provide a great experience for everyone and the vendors wanting to differentiate so that you use their OpenStack or you use their hardware for OpenStack. And I think that that is a classic example in our industry of that tension between a dynamic, standardized, abstracted layer and a vendor-specific feature that causes you to buy their stuff. And I think it leads nicely. I know, Brian, one of the things we wanted to talk about was this idea of you know, traditional vendorized infrastructure versus white box. That's actually a perfect lead in. Absolutely. I'll let you open up where you want this to go. And then I'm going to tag on Aaron's to take us right into it. So since Aaron, you brought up the open stack, open source side of things, Eric, I'd love to hear your perspective as somebody that's watched that space very, very closely. You know, should the heavy reliance on white box equipment and customized open source software cobbled together to create a solution cause concerns to customers who are comfortable with their HPE branded stuff and their VMware branded stuff that come well packaged and well connected together from big name providers that have large support staffs to provide that level of performance and availability they're looking for. And should that be a concern for them? And are there any real differences on how they should view that underlying infrastructure and the capabilities it can provide them? Yeah, and I think Aaron said it out really beautifully, like literally just like you handed me the pitch said, all right, let's take this one out at the park because <laughs> this is it, you set it up. There's two fundamental 
audience approaches that we bumped into in OpenStack Highlight. Look, I'm a longtime fan. I contributed both code, content, documentation, and a lot of time to OpenStack, and I still do. And I think it's actually succeeding very well in the telco market for specific reasons, which led it to why it was is good in those large-scale, interesting environments. And in the geos, we can talk about that in a second. But you had this idea that OpenStack was built on the fundamentals of open or die. It was like the New Hampshire plate or whatever. It's like live free or die. Like this is it. If it's not open source, it's not allowed in our ecosystem. And that's why there's this massive resistance to corporate contributions and rolling it into distributions. And so there's this real sort of internal battle in the community of like, well, I don't want VMware or Dell or HPE building OpenStack and they're using it for their own benefit, man. It was this very sort of like, you know, people sitting in a park, you know, you know twirling their dreadlocks, talking about how the world should be free. <laughs> like, okay, Stallman lover, didn't work out that way. Like it's not, there's nothing wrong with being a capitalist and open at the same time. And because they were so founded on the idea, everything had to be open. Literally, they couldn't use Slack because it wasn't open. It had to be IRC. They couldn't use Atlassian because it wasn't open. It had to be like, so we had this wow. real struggle that they were so hard lined on that. And then the other side of the world is where the vendorized folks are going to come in and God bless them, every one of them, right? And it's to their mind, it's logo or loco. You're either using a product that has the vendor backing and a big organization behind it, or you're nuts. And that was the push of like, this is why by our cloud and by our, and, but it's for the customer experience. Like Lindy talked about the beautiful, warm comfort blanket of like, oh, look at that. There's a logo on the front of my box. Ooh, you know, like you just knew no matter what was inside it, you knew that you could call 1-800, whatever the company name is. And you could say, look, some systems down. What the H, you know, I need to know what's going on. And so I think the the white box is interesting, and I think it came from the developer and application down into infrastructure. And this is where the audience was interesting. My question is this, is that, you know, you buy into this white box and it's custom built and produced and that person leaves the company. What happens to that business next from the perspective of the Phoenix Project, Brent leaves the company? Yes. What happens? I mean, you're you're, you're screwed. <laughs> and I think that, you know, that warm, fuzzy feeling or that nice baby Yoda blanket that I just got for Christmas, you know, is wrapped around you and you feel safe and secure because you're right. You can make that call the 1-800 flavor of the week and they're going to help you out. You're not going to be stuck. Yeah. And I think it's genuine. You really like this is, and I don't think it's unfounded. I also believe that it's not wholly true and it's very situational, like the way that Aaron describes the sort of end to end of like the super hyperscalers and the folks that are like, you know, selling metal, then they're selling stuff that sits on that metal. So you've got this really cool range of stuff in the middle and, and you'll see that, Lindy, like you nailed it of like, look, depending on the size of the organization and your comfort level with bringing your ninjas inside to take Aaron's term, like that's where you're going to succeed. So when we hear about you know, companies that are like, hey, you know, SAP, they ran their incredible OpenStack cloud. They're doing a cr really cool stuff. Mm -hmm. And that was great, but they had dedicated engineers to operate the environment. And then Kubernetes is doing this next thing for us, right? So everybody's going to be like, we thought OpenStack was a world of, of oddness. Wait till Kubernetes comes along and reminds you why OpenStack didn't work, right? Because we're going to hit that with Kubernetes. Everybody loves using it. Hey, look, I have deployed it and it works. <laughs> all right. 
<laughs> let me know how the upgrade cycle works, kid. I'll see you on the other side. And that's no one ever upgrades it. You just, you bring it in, you try it, it works. And then, ooh, okay, now, so as we, I think we're going to see the a neat split in the next three years as people adopt containerized technologies on Logo or Loco, right? Are is it going to be their own white box stuff, just running it on metal, or is it going to be running it on on you know when we see stuff like Tanzu come in from VMware and running all these sort of proprietary things? We're going to see this neat thing of just the same reason why we all shop Amazon as a consumer and also as a provider of infrastructure. We kind of know that I don't want to upgrade this stuff, and that becomes the way of time, cost, and risk. And that's the triangle of concern that any CAO should have is it's not just cost. It's not that what it cost me the six months to run it, but what's the risk and what's the trade-off and, and what I'm willing to take on as an organization in owning that risk. And if I could add a, another point to that as well, because I think it's such a good point and expand it a little more is it's all about, you know, the customer, you have to step back for a second. And, and another question to ask yourself is... Running my own infrastructure or running my own private cloud differentiate it in my business. The vast majority of time, that answer today is no. And that is why the hyperscalers took off like they did. And that is why, you know, VMware on AWS, on Azure, you know, on all of these others is taking off like it is because everyone is coming to the realization that owning and operating that infrastructure unless it is in a packaged format that is streamlined operations to the business it doesn't matter anymore and so you know there is this trend in the industry that is going to be it's you know i come from the converged infrastructure days and we went from converged infrastructure to hyper converged infrastructure Everything will start to go towards that way in the industry, and then everything will go towards the, you know, that baby step towards cloud, if you will, or will go straight to the hyperscalers. And that's all based on the application needs and that application lifecycle of when you're going to upgrade things, when you're going to replace things. You're going to replace things based off of the application needs and the needs of the business and the cost efficiencies of the operations. And we're going to see the next wave, Aaron. It's going to be, it's disaggregated, hyper-converged. And they I, are. I, I, I do not, there are four vendors using that tagline. <laughs> because it, one thing where it's, the only thing that I can say to wrap what everybody said, which is all beautiful and all right, is we are all going to use all of it. And, yes. and it's a matter of the weighting of the, like you said, Aaron, ask yourself these questions. And the most fundamental one is this fundamentally going to change the value that my business brings to my customers? And the tough part is as infrastructure architects and lovers like we are, you know, I love technology. And I'm also, I've had to live through, you know, all right, only over my dead body would we buy this vendor. And then three weeks later, you're welcoming them in for an 18 month deployment project because in the end it was the business made the decision and you just had to go with it. And so, hey, Go with it, right? We, we're going to have to ride these swings in interesting ways. Yeah, definitely. You know, just to quick summarize, there are specialty clouds and there are everything to everyone clouds. And in between them is a large spectrum of different things going all the way down to not even running a cloud on premises and sometimes even using a complete self-built cloud using open source technologies. And it's really all about abstracting the layers. 
including the people themselves. You know, where do you want the specialists to live? Do you want to own them and have to manage them and be reliant on them and, and them potentially leaving you and leaving you with having to find another specialist to replace them? Or do you want them to be on a specialist team that you may not have full control over? And the key thing really is just to make sure that you're getting the capabilities your business needs and not blindly following vendors or the popularity of any given cloud. And when you look at it through that lens, that can really highlight the differences between different clouds, regardless of what the underlying infrastructure is. So the key really is to know what you need out of it and start looking for clouds that offer those capabilities. And I would recommend, you know, considering what the future of the business might be, because where you're going to grow to is equally important because it's not always the easiest to switch at a whim. That's one of the... One of the dreams that we have yet to realize with the cloud is the ability to just automatically move things around super easy. But with that, let's finish off this episode of the Cloud Bytes podcast. Thank you to Aaron, Lindy, and Eric for a great conversation. Also, thanks to Island for making this podcast possible. Please check out the episode notes, panelist contact information, further information on this topic, and all the other episodes at cloudbytes.cloud. You can find our episodes on your favorite podcast apps. And if you found this content useful, we'd really appreciate you sharing with your friends and colleagues and rating us on those podcast platforms. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Cloud Bytes podcast. As I'm going into this uh, new world working for an OEM. Now you got to be careful what you say on podcasts. <laughs> I know. <laughs>